Don't know about you, but I, I needed to sing. Did you need to sing today? Uh, let me try that again. Did you need to sing today? Amen. Praise the Lord. To those of you who are uh, worshiping at home, we trust that you are also singing along with us boldly and uh, defiantly asking God to uh, meet with us today and to satisfy our hearts with him. Take your Bibles and let's go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to just spend some time today in this signature text that identifies a core message of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So Matthew 5, our verses will be verses 2 through 16 today. Matthew 5, 2 through 16. As you're turning there, I want you to think with me of a scenario, the last time that you experienced this, where you had these kind of thoughts run through your head. So think of a situation where these were the things that were running through your head. Things like, okay, where are we? And where do we go from here? Maybe you were traveling somewhere and your phone wasn't working properly. Remember the days when we had to use maps? For those of you under the 18, other years of 18 years of, old, years of age, Maps are pieces of paper that have lines on them that we used to use to try and figure out where to go. And if you didn't know where you were on the map, you didn't know where to go. Or maybe you were hiking. You came to a trail crossing and you weren't sure whether you were supposed to go left or right. Where are we at and where do we go from here? Maybe you were in a sales meeting and you just learned from the manufacturing plant that the product line was gonna be way behind schedule. You have all these sales orders. Okay, where are we? And where do we go from here? Maybe you learned some disappointing news from a friend about their marriage, or their morality, or maybe an illness. Okay, where are we? Where do we go from here? Maybe you experienced a huge loss in your life. Somebody wasn't around the table at Christmas and you're trying to figure out, where am I and how do I go from here? Maybe you watched the news this week and you wondered, where are we and where do we go from here? All of those scenarios have a common denominator, it's the idea of being disoriented. Disoriented creates feelings like fear, anxiety, exhaustion, and even anger. That was the sense in particular that I had, all of those things, along with this disorientation, this sick in my stomach feeling as I watched on my iPad a protest turn into an invasion of our capital during the certification of the 2020 national election. Before I get into the text in Matthew chapter five and thinking about just kind of where we are, where you are, where our church is, where our society is, I just I wanna make a few pastoral comments to try and help you think about this moment. It's important for us to be clear that Violence associated with any protest is wrong, always. It was wrong this summer and fall when the issue at hand was racial injustice, concerns for that. 
and it was wrong on Wednesday. But there's another issue that I just want to talk with you about as your pastor, share my heart with you, something that I've been really concerned about and have been for some time. It is the intermingling of Christian symbols like flags and crosses and signs that say Jesus saves with a political protest. The, the mixture of this political identity and Christian identity is a ditch that I mentioned on December the 23rd in a sermon. Let me tell you exactly what I said. Nations and leaders rise and fall based upon the power of a sovereign God. Every election cycle reveals something about who we are as a nation, and it's also revealing how the church then responds. God's rule over all things means that we can avoid the ditch of elections don't matter, or the ditch of this election is everything. We can avoid the ditch of secular systems like critical theory, critical race theory, and we can avoid the ditch of Christian nationalism by being reminded that nations and rulers matter, but they're not ultimate, they're not everything. It means that we can work to bring change without acting as if everything depended upon it. It means we can be patriotic and love this country without loving it more than the kingdom of God. That was December 23rd. Some of you may not have been familiar with that term Christian nationalism when I shared it on December the 23rd. And let me just give you quickly a helpful definition from Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. They write, it is a, Christian nationalism is a cultural framework that blurs the distinctions between Christian identity and American identity. You could think of it in short form, here's how they define it, as political idolatry dressed up as religious orthodoxy. So it's, it's when symbols and language of Christian identity gets, get mixed with political identity. And when any rally or any party in any moment of history, ours or in the past, and I could show you examples of it happening in the past, whenever that happens and when it leads to violence, we should do our part as Christians and say, that's not right. And we should be clear that it's in fact using Christianity as a political tool and from a spiritual standpoint, that's idolatry. Now, nuance is really important these days. Let me try to be nuanced. You need to know that not everyone at the rally on Wednesday was guilty of Christian nationalism. Some surely were. Some, as we'll find out, were guilty of far more. Others were just there because of political concern. I'm not charging everyone who was at that rally with Christian nationalism, but I am warning Christians about the problem of Christian nationalism. I'm not saying that political engagement or protesting is wrong, but I am saying that to confuse a political movement with the church's mission, that's wrong. I'm not saying that elections are unimportant. But I am saying, as Chuck Colson did, that the kingdom of God doesn't arrive on Air Force One. I am saying, I am not saying that it's wrong to be patriotic. I love this country. But I am saying that we need to understand the difference between pledging allegiance to our country and pledging allegiance to Jesus. I'm not saying that the issues of morality that are involved are unimportant but I am saying that we need to be careful not to be sinful 
and idolatrous as we try to address them. Church, these are challenging days. Days of um, unrest, days of division, days of conflict. These are, in some respects, scary times. Some of you may feel that way. And what I hope that you'll do is you, use, you will use this moment to join me in prayer for every person in authority and for every single one of our own hearts. I hope that what you'll do is keep fixing your eyes on Jesus, our resurrected and true King, and that you'll work hard along with me and our staff and elders to make our church a place where we can preach and live out the gospel in a way that makes a difference in the world but makes a difference in the world the right way. So leaving that disoriented means that you look at life and you're just not sure what to do. And I know that many of us feel that way. Part of the challenge of this previous year and even the context of the last few days is I'm, I find myself looking at my phone at a news feed and going, wait, what? And then seeing something else and going, what in the world? I don't even know what, I don't even have a category for that. And just to help you, categories when they get broken or they get busted or they begin to change or you've got a new category, it's really painful. It's hard, requires important and careful thinking. It's one of the reasons why as we start the new year, I wanna encourage you to read your Bible more, not less. There's many of us who probably could use spending less time reading the news and more times reading our Bible. And so we're starting this Bible reading plan tomorrow called the New 30 Plan, which is to read through the New Testament in 30 days, about seven, eight chapters a day. Right now we've got about 830 people signed up for that. I'm praying for 1,000 people who could uh, join us in this opportunity to read the Bible, which also means you're gonna have to not read other things, so that's part of the point. I want you to use this moment in order to double down on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, that's what this message is all about. The title of it is simply, Let's Just Follow Jesus. Because when life is disorienting, you need to be reminded of some truths that are just underneath all of our lives. Next week, we'll pick up our study of James. We'll continue to march our way through as we have last fall. But today, I simply want to pause and ask two very important questions from Matthew's gospel, and it is this. Number one, what is my identity? Who am I? And number two, what is important? You see, I think those are two questions that when life is really disorienting, when you look at even what happened on the news in, in our nation's history on Wednesday, I think it raises some really important questions. But gratefully, the Bible has answers for those questions, and we should see this as an opportunity to remind ourselves who we are and what's important. So let's do that today. First, this text in Matthew chapter five answers the question, what is my identity. I trust that you are familiar with this idea of identity. It's the, the sum total of who you are. It's your persona. It's, it's the essence of what makes you, you. And when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the Bible is really clear on what the identity of Christ's followers are. So if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, what I'm gonna to do today is explain the way that Christians, because of God's grace, are to conduct themselves. And here's the challenge. I'm sure you're going to know many Christians who do not measure up to what this 
particular text is going to say, and there's a boatload of them. By the way, any Christians in this room today that when I, you know in advance, when we go through Matthew chapter five, I'm pretty sure I'm not gonna be able to say I've nailed all of these. Any Christians like that in the room today who would be willing to raise their hand? A few, anyone else who's a Christian who would say you've not perfectly obeyed the Bible today? Huh? Okay, all right. Anyone else wanna just acknowledge that reality quickly, please? All right. So this sermon is about identity. It's, it's who you are. And what happens is that Jesus identifies this core teaching at the inauguration of his ministry. This is the first sermon we have in the book of Matthew. And he's addressing a crowd, a group of people who are following him, and he's going to help them understand what does it mean to follow me? Eventually Jesus will die. He'll be raised again from the dead. The offering of believing in him will not only wipe away people's sins who put their trust in Christ, but will also create a new empowerment within them to follow him, and he's identifying what that ethic looks like. So one commentator says this, what Jesus is essentially saying is that because you are what you are, because the future is what it is, this is how you should live. So because of who you are, this is how you should live. If you grew up in a home with an assertive mother, you may have heard it this way. We don't do that here. <laughs> we, don't, we don't do that in this house. That's not who we are, even though what you did is what you did. What, in effect, she's saying is, look, that's not behavior that fits with who we are as a family. That's what Jesus is saying. So what are these qualities that are the evidences of God's grace? So if somebody puts their faith and trust in Jesus, how do Christians then live? Well, there's eight Beatitudes here, and the word beatitude means blessing. It's not as though God says, um, I'm for you, for you, for you, against you, against you. What, what he's doing is saying, those who understand God's grace are so enamored with the beauty of who Jesus is that this is the ethic, this is the way that they live. Christian, this is who you are. And I think it's just helpful to be reminded, who are we and who are we supposed to be? Well, first, we are humbly dependent. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way you get into following Jesus in the first place is realizing that you need help. And authentic spirituality begins with a deep understanding of how much we need God. The book of Isaiah says, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I wanna remind you that God says that he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. So can I just remind you, Christian, that who you are because of Jesus is a person who understands what it means to be poor in spirit. When something enters your life that reminds you that you're not in control, Christians look at that and say, knew it. That's right, I'm not in control. When something enters your life that reminds you that you need help, a Christian looks at that and says, yep, I've always needed help. When something comes your way and you realize that you've not been perfect, a Christian realizes, exactly, Jesus saved me from myself. It's, a, it's an otherworldly perspective. Here's the second thing. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Christians take sin seriously. He calls people to a view of life that shuns a lighthearted attitude regarding the seriousness of our sins. 
It's a people who understand God's grace, but it's a people who primarily understand their sins, their shortcomings, where they've been wrong, what they're responsible for. So just, I want you to see the world through this lens and remind you that at the very beginning when God confronted Adam with his sin, the first thing he did was not own up to it. What did he do? The first thing he did was to blame Eve and blame God. God said, who told you you were naked? And he said, the woman who you gave me. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Well, what about Eve and what about you? There's a lot of whataboutisms happening in the context of our culture today. Let me encourage you to not be that person. When, when David was confronted with his sin, he didn't say to Nathan, well, what about Saul? David owned it and said, yeah, that's not right, it's wrong. We take sin seriously. Third, we are meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, meaning power under control, a refusal to insist on one's own rights. A deep understanding of grace that triumphs over everything else, freeing you from the need to be right or to elevate your desires as the ultimate aim in life. Number four, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a hungering and thirsting for the right things. We have the right desires. So the single consuming passion and the longing of the heart of somebody who has been captured by the beauty of Jesus' grace is for righteousness. Jesus is driving home this kingdom ethic that that kingdom-minded people don't just do right things or think right things once in a while. It's the right thing is what they love and what they long for. Hungering and thirsting. What are, you, what are you hungering and thirsting for these days? What is it that you want? One of the ways that you know what you want is by what makes you worried, what makes you mad, what ticks you off, what thing could somebody do and boom, it lights you up. Tomorrow at noon, we're gonna open the chapel again, just a place for prayer, 12 to one, won't be guided, just a quiet place to come. It's limited to the 25 people at a time because oh, by the way, there's still a global pandemic and our county moved to red this week. But one of the reasons we're doing that is just to provide a space for you to be reminded, I got a hunger and thirst for righteousness. I got a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Next, verse seven, blessed are the merciful. So here are those who are godly in their graciousness. There is this generous attitude toward others that includes, listen carefully, an unwillingness to take a quick offense or to gloat over the shortcomings or failures of others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Next, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those whose hearts have been so transformed that they, they see the world differently. They, they, they see it through a Christ-centered lens. Next, number seven, blessed are the peacemakers. Those who not just keep peace, not just those who don't break peace, and certainly not those who fake peace, plenty of people like that in the world, but peacemakers who know the calming influence, the transformative work of Jesus, and they become effective agents of peace and reconciliation in the world. 
And finally, just reminding that we live in a hostile environment, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not persecuted because you're annoying. (laughs) Not persecuted because you said too much. Not persecuted because you're just not a very nice person. No, 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 no. That's not persecution. That's called justice. (laughs) Persecution is when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. When what you've done is right and it's not been received. So Jesus says all of this at the very beginning of his ministry. He's got crowds of people who are listening to him. He's got this unbelievable popularity and yet Jesus defines what following him looks like. And the crowd, when they heard his teaching, Matthew chapter seven tells us, the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There was something weighty something unusual, something otherworldly about what Jesus was saying. And part of the reason, not the only reason, but part of the reason that it was so surprising is because Jesus' teaching cut through all other identities. You weren't safe if you were a Pharisee. You weren't safe if you were a scribe. You weren't safe if you were a Sadducee. Jesus' ethic, his identity cut across ruling class and working class. This identity cut across zealots, those who wanted to overthrow Rome, and those who worked for Rome. Jesus' identity ethic got underneath all other identities, and it was marked by humility and meekness and a passion for righteousness and mercy and peacemaking. And then we move into the New Testament, and we see the same thing as this identity is then lived out. In fact, the Apostle Paul calls it in Colossians 3, your new self. He says, put on, or having put on the new self, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, which means my goal is to be like Jesus. My goal is to have the glory of God reflected in my life. And Paul then says to that church here in the church, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. The idea is that the identity of Christ-likeness gets underneath all other identities in the world. This is really important right now because there's a boatload of identity tribes that you could hang out with. There's identity markers that you could associate with and it's important that we understand our biblical identity of who we are in Christ. Who are we? Who are you? That's an important question to ask before you speak. Who am I? It's an important question to answer when you're in the middle of conflict. Who am I? It's an important question before you throw out a post or say something. Who am I? In 2014, we talked about this matter of identity and in the context of that, one of our staff said, Mark, I'm not sure you fully explained what gospel identity is. And then the following Sunday, I gave four key marks of gospel identity. And you've heard them before. God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life. That's who I am. In fact, those became so sticky that we put them on shirts that people are baptized in, and when they come out of the waters, it's a statement. This is who I am. God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life. Some of you, that may need to be a marching order that you communicate to yourself tomorrow morning when you put your feet on the floor. God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life. Some of you may need to go to bed tonight reminding yourself, God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life. 
By the way, we have some t-shirts out there with those people ask, could I get a t-shirt like that with that thing on my chest? Yes, you can. Just when you wear it, be sure you identify well in how you act, all right? That's why we don't do bumper stickers around here because you never know what's gonna happen with your car. If we do well with the t-shirts, maybe we'll bring out bumper stickers. I don't know, I just wanna be pastorally wise. I know you, I know me. Let's just be careful, right? All right one, one step at a time, all right? One step at a time. So ask yourself this, who are you? Who am I? When you read your Bible, ask yourself, who am I? When you watch the news, ask yourself, who am I? When you engage in conversation with people, ask yourself, who am I? This is a great time to be alive. It's a great time to be a Christian because you're gonna have to ask that question. Who am I? Secondly, what's important? The text says you are the salt of the earth. So it's not that, there's two metaphors that are here, salt and light. And it's not that these are the only two metaphors, these are the only two things that are important, but what Jesus wants to do is to drive home that these identity markers now are to be lived out in how we conduct ourselves. So he says, you are the salt of the earth. Salt was meant to be a preservative agent. It was meant to do things. Salt was meant to be salty. Think of that, I was just thinking salt and saltiness. It's, it's kind of a rare thing to have the description and the name go together. Like we don't do that with pepper. Like, Pepper, and this is peppery, we don't do that, right? Um, but salt and salty, if it isn't salty, then salt has lost its purpose. The purpose of salt is saltiness. And what Jesus is saying is the purpose of you in the world is to be a preserving agent, to bring a measure of the kingdom with them in every arena in which they enter. Which means, listen to me carefully, your presence, your attitude, your words, what you, how you act, it's a flavoring. And the question, is it a flavoring that fits with the glory of God? This is hard, it's difficult, you gotta figure out how to work this out, but that's the mission of Jesus, is to send people out in the world such that other people, when they experience them, would go, man, I don't know anybody who is kind like you. And when the darkness is dark, it's an opportunity for the light to be clear. So secondly, Jesus says, you're the light of the world. A city set up on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So if you grew up in church, or in Sunday school, you know there's a song that I just have to mention, right? This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Hide it, here comes the fun part, hide it under a bushel. No, right? Well, why, why no? Because the light was meant to shine. So here's the deal. Some of you need to have a different mindset about the moment that we live in. Maybe you hoped that January 1st, 2021 was gonna be different. <laughs> Newsflash, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Our hope is not a change in the calendar date. In fact, uh, my son showed me a meme. It had a wave that had the words 2020 on it and then it had a tidal wave behind it called 2020. So the small wave was 2020 and there was a bigger wave behind it that was 2021. I want you to shift your mindset. Stop thinking about what it means to endure this season and instead see it as an unbelievable opportunity to platform the light of the glory of God and the person of Jesus in your life. Stop seeing conflict as something that you have to endure. See conflict as an opportunity to demonstrate that I love Jesus. This is who we are. 
Christianity was made for moments like this. When the darkness is dark, it's an opportunity for the light to shine. When people are angry, it's an opportunity to be kind and gracious. When the world is divided, it's an opportunity for the church to say, no, 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 we're not gonna divide. When, when the world looks around and says, what in the world? It's a moment for the church to say, how about the heart? Because we happen to know a Jewish rabbi named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. He's changed people from the inside out. In some respects, it's a good moment for us to go back to some basics. We gotta love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We gotta love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's not make it overly complicated. Let's just follow Jesus. When we think about where we are as a church, I have no strategic plan to give you this morning. <laughs> I can't. Everything changes every couple weeks. But here's some things I do know. In fact, here's an image that we've used over the last year with our elders and staff to think about our identity. Sorry guys, can you put split, split, the split screen up there for me, thank you. So this is what we call our identity compass. This was designed to try and help summarize lots of words that we have out there. How do we think about us as a church? So our mission in the middle there is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. It's about the gospel. Everything that we are about is about the good news of Jesus. That message is central in all that we do, and it's the message of many, many churches in our city. We are not the only church preaching the gospel in this city. We have many brothers and sisters who are co-laborers in arms trying to find ways to help people know and who and what Jesus is. But all of our churches, no matter where they are over the city, have the same mission from Jesus. It's called the Great Commission. We just express the Great Commission with this phrase, igniting a passion to follow Jesus. Then from there we have six core values. The preeminence of Jesus. I don't want you to look like me, I want you to look like Jesus. Our goal is to have, when the smoke of history settles, you're in love with who Jesus is. The reason, we teach the, the reason we teach the Bible is to have you know and love Jesus, not just know the Bible. The Bible's important, but Jesus is what the goal is. But then secondly, the authority for ministry comes from the word. That's why we preach using the scriptures, expositionally walking through principles and ideas and points and verse by verse in order to help you understand what the Bible says because our authority is based not in our opinions but in what the word of God says. Third, redemptive community. You were not meant to do life alone and a global pandemic has probably showed you that in spades. The problem is that for many of us, our community connections weren't as strong as we thought they were, and the pandemic has tested them, and in some cases, busted them. So we need to figure out how do we love one another and create communities that are redemptive, meaning helping people to grow in likeness with Jesus. Two guys getting together over coffee and just talking isn't community unless a conversation about Jesus is in the midst of that. Talking about anything is fine, but Redemptive community means I'm trying to help you follow Jesus and you're trying to help me. Extravagant grace, meaning we're going to display the same kind of grace that God has displayed to us. We're going to love people in a way that he has loved us. So from our generosity and our kindness and our posture as it relates to other people, we wanna be extravagantly gracious. Biblical unity and diversity means that we need to keep the main thing, the main thing, the gospel and Jesus, and then understand what are other issues that believers can disagree on but still love one another more than we don't agree with each other. And whether that's um, people from different walks of life, different parts of our city, different socioeconomic statuses, uh, different perspectives on aspects of uh, elements of theology, Yes, as it relates even to issues of ethnicity, we need to realize that underneath the most strident categories in our culture and society, the gospel gets underneath that 
and was designed to say something powerful to the world. The call to go. This is not what church is to be in total. This is a moment for us to be reminded so you can go out and our most effective moment of mission is not what happens on Sunday morning, it's what happens Monday through Saturday as you go out into the marketplace, as you declare in a variety of ways, God is holy, I'm not, Jesus saves, Christ is my life. And then our strategy, essentially how do we move people along is along. We want them to belong. We want you to become a member of this church, a covenant member where you say, I officially want to say, these are my people and these are my elders and this is the place where I'm going to grow in grace. The Bible doesn't have really a category for believers who are just kind of free range rovers and kind of going wherever they want. You need to put your roots down and say, this is the place. Grow is the next step. Find a community in which you can follow Jesus, whether it's a class or a group, and then to multiply. What does it mean to disciple others around you and multiply your gifts, multiply your talents, multiply the things that God has given you? Now, if you notice, there's four other words, depth, care, creativity, and impact. And we chose those words to sort of describe the culture of our church. Like, what does our church feel like? And what do we want it to feel like? Think of it like a, the smell of smoke when you're around a bonfire. And as best as we could determine, these are four really critical things that just describe when you think of all of the evangelical churches in our city and in our country, this is sort of the unique mix of both who we are and who we want to be. Depth. Let me give you this slide. A commitment to historical and theological truth anchored in the Bible. We're going to go deep into God's word, as we always have. But at the same time, we're going to care. We want people to matter to us and to God and to make a big church feel small. Creativity, find fresh and new ways to reach people and help them grow. And impact, we wanna change the world together one person at a time. I was having a conversation with uh, one of our members just before a funeral, and they said that when they first came to our church, it struck them that at a large church, we still pray for people up front in a pastoral prayer by name. We do that on purpose because we want you to know that individual people matter to our elders. We're not a machine, we're a church, we're a family. We're a big family with lots of different people from different parts of uh, our society and culture. We have some young cousins that are kind of cute and we have some crazy uncles that are part of our family. And, but we're a family, we're just together, right? And the fact of the matter is, is we wanna know how do we love each other and we wanna care for each other and we wanna do that creatively. And so two things in particular that we're gonna be working on in 2021 is both that care and creativity piece. Meaning, in the New Testament, the Bible often said, it, it says, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. This is a moment for us to ask, Holy Spirit, what do you want for our church to be doing in the middle of this unprecedented time? I mean, one of the things that we're thankful for is God has surfaced an opportunity that had been there all along, but we didn't see it as clearly as we see now with single adults. That's just one thing. Or a community counseling clinic to deal with addictions. That's been there for a long time, but now is an opportunity. And what else, God, by virtue of this moment, do you want us to be able to consider? And how can we also creatively care for people? How can we creatively care for people who aren't gonna be able to come back to in-person service anytime soon? We love you and we wanna care for you. How do we care for people from all walks of life? And that's where we need, where I need your help. Because that isn't just a church priority. That requires a heartfelt commitment on all of us. That means please use your phone, call a friend, check in on them. As one of our staff members did with another staff member this week, 
needed some information at the end of a conversation, just said, hey, how can I pray for you? What a great question to ask. We ought to ask one another that question more often, not less during these days. And please, don't ask me to develop a program to help you know how to ask that question. Just ask the question, please. Be a Christian, be somebody who cares, be somebody who loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who loves your neighbor as yourself. As we move together into 2021, there's a whole host of things that we don't know. But here's what I do know. We serve a king who conquered death, who rose again from the dead, and every Sunday morning is a declaration. My king is alive, right? Every Sunday is a declaration of that. Every Sunday is a reminder. We have a sure word that's inspired from God. We have brothers and sisters who are not like us, but we like them. And we have a mission from Jesus who promised us that he would be with us and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So rather than seeing this year as, oh, I hope I can make it, I want to change your mindset and say, church, let's go. Let's see this as an opportunity to make the light bright in the darkness and the salt salty in order for the world to know the compelling message of what it is to be a follower of Jesus because you know who you are and you know what's important. And now by God's grace, let's go for the glory of God. Father in heaven, we pray that our hearts would be filled with wonder of who Jesus is and faith to believe that you will help us every step of the way. Lord, there are some who have come with very burdened hearts today. Would you meet them and give them encouragement and strength? Lord, others who have faith, help them to communicate that boldness to others, to carry people along. Lord, we love you and we're grateful that we can trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.